Before I begin what is going to be a somewhat difficult and I'm sure somewhat disagreed with sermon, let me say that even though I take one side of this <clears throat> extremely difficult debate, I make, and I hope you do, a presumption of goodness among those who disagree with me. I don't think that this is a question of good people versus bad people. And I hope that we can stay away from sloganeering or slander. I don't think on the one side that people are careless about life or on the other side that people don't care about women. I think this is a deep and divisive issue. And I hope as best I can to explain what it is that we at, the, at Sinai Temple, the clergy, believe and why we believe it without implying that those who don't believe it are therefore bad, inferior, or foolish. I want to begin with why it is that after the Supreme Court decision striking down Roe v. Wade, Sinai Temple put out a statement because a couple of people have said you shouldn't have said anything. This, I must admit, I find a very peculiar argument. First of all, every rabbinic organization that I know, Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, Reconstructionist, every single one put out a statement. Every rabbi that I know, I'm sure there are rabbis who didn't, but so far I am unaware of them, and they are surely in the minority. The Federation literally sent around an email saying, Rabbis, we know you're going to talk about this. Let us know what you said. Because you see, when Judaism has thousands of years of legal response on a particular issue, and there could be, there could be and are books written about the Jewish response to the question of abortion, and it has philosophical speculation, when it becomes a major issue, in the public life of America, it would be a dereliction of duty to say, I know this is a big issue, but actually Judaism has nothing to say about it, so I'm gonna keep quiet. So I cannot imagine that somebody would be surprised that we actually spoke up, although they may not like what we said. First, Let's start with what happened, which is that the Supreme Court turned the issue back to the states. The reason that that is a problem, because after all, that just means that the people can decide, has three separate pieces, legal, cultural, and personal. First of all, Jewish law is unequivocal about one thing. It is not murder to have an abortion. Although there are traditions, not Jewish, that believe that from the beginning, because of the Torah, Judaism explicitly rejects that view. There is a passage in Exodus that says that if a man strikes a woman, causes a miscarriage, he is fined. And the reason that he's fined is because although murder is a capital offense, it's not considered murder, even Rashi says so. 
That's an important groundwork for this because those ideas and philosophies and religions that equate abortion with murder, we should know are not our own, even among the most traditional of the most traditional. The reason that there's a fine is because of what is called wounding, habala, but it's wounding in Hebrew. And some take that to refer to the fetus, and some take that to refer to the woman. So in Jewish law, there is one clear line and a couple of blurry ones. The clear line is the life of the mother always, always, always takes precedent over the life of the fetus until the fetus is actually mostly born. That is, has emerged from the womb. So even until the ninth month, according to Jewish law, if the mother's health is endangered, an abortion is mandatory. Now, obviously, this is a terrible, tragic situation. God forbid that should ever happen. But it is important to know that. That's point one. That is pretty indisputable among Jewish scholars. What I'm going to say from now on, you will see, has more gray area. The question is, what, what means the health and, and anguish of the mother? And here you get everything from, it has to be only a threat to the life of the mother, to it can be the deep distress and anguish of the mother. And that range of opinion is a range. And, and I would say that it is fair to say that abortion as a means of casual birth control, where there's not anguish or pain or fear, contradicts Jewish law. However, in my own experience talking to people who have had abortions, I have never met someone, although I'm sure it exists, I have never met someone who said, well, I just sort of casually, without much thinking about it, because after all, I wanted to have birth control, had an abortion. So even though that does contradict Jewish law, I think it also more or less contradicts human nature. A number of halakhic authorities have mandated abortion in other extreme cases that you can imagine, and which I'm going to speak about in a moment. Because when you turn something back to the states, you do get laws in places that have a very different philosophy from other states. And so, for example, if I have read this correctly, and I've read a couple of accounts of it, immediately enacted in Alabama was a law that not only prohibited abortion in cases of rape or incest, prohibited it, and made the provider who gives it subject to life imprisonment. Now, there are a number of halakhic authorities, again, who permit, in cases of rape or incest, abortion. And therefore, if you live in Alabama, you have a good chance that a state law could violate Jewish law. And that's something that is important to think about and to consider, because the second piece of this is a cultural piece. 
And here is the more difficult and tricky area. It is worth noting that one of the, one of the justices, in his opinion, concurring with the majority, said that the same reasoning that applied to turning abortion back to the states applied to gay marriage and to contraception. In other words, it is conceivable, according to this justice, and I don't know if this ideology will catch on, that you could have states in the United States that would legally forbid contraception. That's a cultural issue of no small note, I think, to most of us who have, want, don't want, or think about children. And this leads to something that we ought to note before I get into the most difficult part of this, which is that in 1868, when the Due Process Clause was instantiated, there was one really important group that had no voice and couldn't vote. Women. And when these halachic opinions were rendered for all of Jewish history until about the last 30 to 50 years, there was one group who was affected by every one of these halachic opinions that never had the right to issue a halachic opinion, women. So when we refer back to the halacha or to constitutional opinions, we do have to actually take into account that the people that were most deeply affected by these rulings had absolutely no say whatsoever in those rulings. Not in America until about 100 years ago, a little bit more. And not in Judaism until about 50 years ago, a little bit less. And this brings me to the third and honestly most difficult part of this discussion. And that is my experience as a rabbi in this congregation for the past 25 years. See, I can think of three instances. There may have been more, but I remember three of them. And I'm sure there were more that I didn't know of where I had in front of me a family, one of whom was a young girl with desperation in her eyes and fear in the room because in two cases of what she had done and in one case of what was done to her. And there was only one way that any of them believed they could save their lives. Now, if you can put yourself in that situation and say, nonetheless, I oppose that girl's chance to save her future, if you can believe that, and there are many people who do, then you and I have a very large divergence of view, and we have to respect that that is the case. 
But if you know what you would do, then to be supportive of the possibility that if that girl had been born not in Los Angeles to a wealthy family and a respected family and a, and a relatively well-known family, but to Al in Alabama, to a poor family, all I can say is you ought not to be comfortable knowing that that girl in Alabama can't have the same option that the girls who sat in my office had. So you have to decide if you were in that position, because it is not an abstract issue. It is a real issue. Day after day after day, and you have to decide what would you do. And I will tell you that I know that there are circles that are officially extremely opposed to this procedure for reasons that I respect. And yet, sotto voce, that is, softly, without anyone noticing, make exceptions because they can't stand the consequence of not doing so. It's not easy. Nobody ever thought this one was. And we will not all agree. And I didn't give this sermon to convince you. But where you stand, especially in such an intimate and painful issue, depends a lot on where you sit, on what your life is, on who you know and who you've faced and who you've been. I know that I am very grateful to live in a place where a woman ultimately for all the anguish and pain that this means, and the fact that the fetus in our tradition is a potential life, it's not nothing, it is a potential life that could be a human being, I'm still very grateful to live in a state where ultimately that woman who for so long didn't have a voice has the voice. And I hope and pray that one day we will live in a country as we once did, where she will have it wherever she lives. Shabbat Shalom.